I'm UH alcoholic. I'm also an addict. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you again for asking me. It's nice to see everyone here. It was nice when I checked in, there were 10 people. So I thought, oh, that's a nice, comfortable group. And then a bunch of people came in, so no longer comfortable, but I'll get comfortable. <laughs> um, yeah, this is my first time here. Um, I, I met Zanner at a agnostics meeting in LA, I think. And, and so by the way, I, I just wanna be as honest as I could, can be. I, I have a trust in that. Uh, so um, I would consider myself someone who just goes to mainstream Alcoholics Anonymous. I also go to Narcotics Anonymous. And, uh, but I happened to drop into the agnostics meeting and I loved the, uh, the tone and the feel of it and, and just the openness. And, um, and so I've just been going back here and there and, um, and then here I am here. And I know a couple of people, I've met a couple of people. Um, I don't know, so just a quick background is, um, so I, I used various drugs, in, including alcohol, um, starting at the age of 15. And by the time I was 20, I was done. And at 19, I hit what I consider my main bottom, um, which was, um, while well, I was tripping on some acid and so on, and, marijuana and so on. And, but, and I had had a lot of bad trips before, but I just got to the point where I just thought I need to end my life. So I, I attempted to end my life in a car by driving myself up over a cliff, cliffside. And I survived it. But because I was under the influence, they sent me to six meetings of Narcotics Anonymous at the time. I hope it, so I, I heard something about outside issues. So I, I'm, not, I'm not meaning to disrespect the AA tradition, but I'm, I'm just mentioning that because that's part of my story. And that's how I started. And, uh, but I was continuing to drink. And I wanna say something about my drinking also was that um, for me, I, I did a number of drugs. And I, as I mentioned with alcohol, I drank mostly vodka for, because it was just quick. Um, beer was good because it was accessible, but it was most, I was mostly vodka and beer drinker. But for me, the easiest thing to that I had access to was marijuana. It was just the thing if had, had there been another drug that I had an easier access to, that probably would have been the thing I would have done most. And because I was underage, uh, alcohol wasn't something I could get every single day. So when I look back, my drinking lagged my using. And so even though when I drove myself off a cliff, I was like, okay, I can't touch these drugs. I kept drinking, but my drinking was starting to catch up to the way I had been using, which was every day and addictively, and it was the center of my life and used to live, live to use kind of thing. Um, but I ended up coming into NA and then eventually to AA. And I've been sober and clean since. And so that was back in February 23rd of 89. And so I've managed to hang around for that time but I wanted to share something and I don't want to, you know, I have no intention of being controversial and I don't, I don't know what the tone of this group is, but um, I'm just gonna take Xanner's <laughs> word that you can basically say what's true for you. Yeah. So for me, when I was new, I heard a lot about the importance of 
um, something like becoming convinced to the core of your being that you're an alcoholic. And for me, I couldn't say that. I couldn't say that I was convinced to the core of my being. It was more that I was pretty confident I was, but I had some doubts. I had some reservations. And I wondered, I wonder if I should go out and drink to become convinced. But I happened to have a sponsor who told me, um, you, you don't really need to do it that way. You can just keep coming around and maybe you'll hear your story. And if you look at the way you use drugs, maybe that can tell you something. So I just kind of put that question on the back burner and just continued along. And I had a sponsor who was very supportive and basically took me through the steps and so on. But I wanna be honest. So right now I'm supposed to have 32 years of sobriety and I do. But if someone asked me, are you convinced to the core of your being that you're an alcoholic? I would say in all honesty, I'm not. Again, I'm confident. There's a pretty good chance that I am. And I don't wanna try it out. And I'm not confident that my life won't crumble. If someone had said early on, are you convinced that you're an addict? I would have said, it looks pretty good that I am. But I don't know if this is the common story, but for me, through staying sober and so on, my thinking has changed. And I don't find myself thinking the way I used to think a lot. So when I go into a meeting and someone starts talking a certain way and says, this is addict-like thinking, my thought often is, um, I don't think that's addict-like thinking. It just seems like that's just kind of messed up thinking, period. It's just kind of immature thinking, psychologically off thinking. And uh, so, so I just think, okay, I, I can work on that. And so at this point, I don't know. And so if someone asks me, why do you not drink then? Why do you not use drugs then? I would say um, the real reason is I don't have a good reason to at this point. And for me, that's a good enough reason. And, and one of the things that's been helpful for me in that actually is in the 12 and 12, where the founder of Alcoholic, one of the co-founders of Alcoholic Anonymous, Bill Wilson, in step one writes, he actually poses the question of why is it so important for a person in, in sobriety to be convinced that, they, that they're an alcoholic, that they have a problem with alcohol? And his answer is, by the way, I'm only sharing this in case it can be useful to even one person. So he poses, why is that so important? Because I, I heard that so much and I continue to hear that at meetings as if like, if you don't have that locked down, you're doomed. But like, I'm an example where I'm, I wasn't doomed. So he poses, why is that so important? And, he, and the answer that he gives is something along the lines of, because unless we're convinced that we have a real problem, we're not gonna have the willingness to go through with all the work that sits in front of us, the work of recovery, the work of working on ourselves, and he's implying the steps. Well, I'm an example where I wasn't convinced, but I had hit such a devastating emotional bottom that I became willing to do the work. So I, I did the work and, and I continue to do the work and the results have come about to where there's been a shift in my thinking to where I can't find a good reason to drink. I can't find a good reason to use. And I continue to do the work to the best of my ability. And so that's, that's an important part of my story that I feel that I need to share.
that if there's even one person in this room who has that doubt and you're surrounded by a bunch of especially low bottom drunks, which it seemed like I kept encountering at the speaker meetings in Southern California from you know Clancy's group down here. Um, I was like, I don't know if I belong, but somehow I hung in there. I, and the other cool thing is, one thing I learned is um, you can hit a lot of bottoms in sobriety. You know what I mean? I've hit a lot of bottoms in my first five years of sobriety where I just got kind of beat up to become more and more willing. And, uh, and that, to me, the willingness allowed me to stay sober. So, um, I don't know. Uh, so that was, by the way, you know, sometimes I think about what I'm going to share beforehand, and that was the main thing I thought about. But um, so maybe I could just share a couple other things about my sobriety, my recovery. Um, so, but just a few things also. But when I was out there before I came into the program, I did a lot of the typical things. Like I began slowly burning bridges with most of my friends and my family. And pretty soon I was pretty much isolated, pretty much kind of on my own. And when I first came in, when I came into my first few meetings, what attracted me was just the, was just the sort of humanity and the warmth and the camaraderie. And I had tried other things before that of like meditation things and Buddhist things and even some kind of Christianish things. And uh, they were great, but the program, both programs were the first place where I really just felt that warmth, that human sort of care. And that was the attraction. That was my initial attraction to the program. Eventually, um, I, I got a sponsor and his name was John. I'll just say a little bit about him. So my first year, I, I was a student at Pasadena City College. <clears throat> Uh, making pottery. And my dream was I, I would um, live in the mountains in a tent away from all humans and uh, make pottery and then come down from the mountains once a year and sell my pottery. And, you know, I basically stole that script from some Taoist book I had probably read, but like that had somehow become my sort of dream. So I was making this pottery. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was hitting a lot of emotional bottoms while going to meetings. <laughs> And uh, so anyway, um, and later I switched my major to music because that's cool. And, and I cared about sex. So I thought, you know, playing music, I'll get a lot of chicks. And, um, but I didn't have a lot of talent or nor dedication. So, um, and, then, and then I took a psychology class and I thought, wow, I should learn about psychology because I have a lot of problems and I could fix myself. So it had nothing to do with helping anybody else, but I thought if I become a psychologist, I can just use it on myself so I don't need people that way. Right? I can eliminate the need for people, be completely self-sufficient. But anyway, and you know, one of the classes I took was abnormal psychology. And I was just talking with my friend about this, that, you know, don't take, please, you I don't think a person new in recovery should take abnormal psychology because him and I had the same experience, which was that we identified with every single issue that we read about. So, so by the end of the semester, it's complete neurosis. But, um, and then I took sociology and I thought, oh, okay, I'm not the problem. Society is a problem and I'll fix the problem in society. So that's kind of where I was when I met my sponsor. He had heard me share at meetings. We were talking. Actually, so this is kind of interesting. So I had about nine months at the time 
And, um, you know, so I was pretty sick and I was out of touch with reality. And I don't know how, but I became convinced that I had to sell everything I owned uh, and then drive my car to the edge of Los Angeles, to the edge of the desert out here, and then walk away from my car and meditate for 20 days and 20 nights and become the next savior of the world. And again, I'm not sure where I got that because I didn't have a Christian upbringing or anything. And um, anyway, later, that, that plan didn't go as planned at all. I never even made it to the desert. But later when I met this guy in the program, I told him about it. He says, Yuichi, your half measures all the way. It's supposed to be 40 days and 40 nights. I was like, what? <laughs> so like, anyway, so I don't even know where I got 20 days and 20 nights. Maybe there's a movie, but um, funny. But when I was trying to enact that plan, I had actually liquidated all my money, which amounted to like one thousand two hundred dollars. Because I was I was twenty years old, twenty or twenty one, and uh, I'd said goodbye to my mother, and she started crying, which is terrible. You know, silently I was thinking goodbye, and she could read probably a horrifying expression on my face, and she started crying, and I thought, well, this is the way I must go. You know, kind of completely lost in my delusion, and then I. I had a friend in recovery who, was, who had shared about needing rent money. So I was gonna drive up to her house and give her the money before driving out into the desert. And so, um, but, so I, I left the money and then I went back to my car and my car was locked. I locked my, and the keys were inside. So I was like, oh shoot, I gotta wait for her. So I waited for her. And when she came back, she had this old timer named John. He's probably about 55, 60 years old. And she said, you know, I've been worried about you. You've been sounding really off at the meetings. So I want you to talk to John. And John says, well, let's get your car unlocked first. And it was dark by then. And he gave me a coat hanger. And he talked, I'd never, you know, opened a car with a coat lock with a So I'm doing that and he's, he's, he's holding a flashlight for me because it's dark. You know, and it's not lost on me that I'm, I'm trying to open the door to get my keys and he's flashing a light so I can see. <laughs> it's like one of those acid moments, right? Like, wow, this is so deep. I get it. I get, I get what's happening here, right? <laughs> anyway, I open it up and we go back to my friend's place and she serves us some tea, says, I'll leave you two alone. And John's heard me at meetings and he says to me, you know, it's okay to major in underwater basket weaving for the rest of your life and accomplish nothing. But um, what, how have you ever helped someone? And I thought, mm, I don't know. I've, I know that I've been called the most self-centered, selfish person that someone has ever met, but <laughs> help someone. I don't know. My sister was a cheerleader and she was popular, but I think no one liked me growing up. Um, but I, I remembered one thing. I remembered I've always been good at math. So I kind of sheepishly said, well, I always have helped my friends with math. I just helped them out with math. That's the only thing I could think of. And I felt so bad inside that that's the only thing I could think of. I didn't like anybody, but I just thought, since I was good at it, why don't I help them? And they always ask me for help. So John says, why don't you change your major and work your way up so that you can pass on knowledge. 
And that'll be maybe a good enough contribution to the world instead of throwing some seeds into the ground and being content with that. Because he had heard me share that my dream was, my other dream was to have a little lot and plant some flowers. And I think I got that from Death of a Salesman, Willie Loman, right? And uh, <laughs> all my dreams were just basically borrowed from you know various sources. But um, and when he said that, it really struck a bell with me. Like what, what was clear was that everything I had done up until that moment that I'd pursued was about me. It was just about me. It was about how much, how much adoration I could get or how I could fix myself or I could, or I could fix others because they weren't meeting my needs. Or um, my first major in college was dramatic writing. I wanted to be a playwright or screenwriter. And I'd gone to NYU actually, Tisch School of the Arts. And, and mainly so that I could just win some awards. And I, I was constantly practicing my awards acceptance speeches too. <laughs> I think that's what you get when you grow up in LA. But anyway, well, I, I blame LA, not myself, no. But um, so, so he was giving me a vision of walking down a path where it wasn't about me. And I could feel the difference. I could feel how much more relaxing how much more open I felt about that, how, how much, what a relief it was that it wasn't the pursuit of self. And so I changed my majors and I ended up, it was a struggle at first because um, I hadn't done math in a couple of years and my brain was messed up, but eventually that part of my brain came back and I ended up getting a, my bachelor's, a master's, a second master's and a doctorate. And, and the whole time my idea was I'm just going into teaching and eventually I got a position as a university professor. And, uh, and it was, what was interesting for me about that and it, how it's relevant to my sobriety is I got to see something, a certain kind of a principle that I've come to accept or believe in, which is that any part of my life that I imbue with the motivation of service or the motivation of what can I contribute has a tendency to kind of work itself out. Whereas other parts of my life where it becomes about what can I get, kind of falter. They kind of, um, they kind of get consumed in self. And another way to say it is I just get bored. My MO was to start things and quit, start things and quit, start things and quit. And uh, that was one of the few things, one of the first things in my life that I noticed I was continuing with. And I, don't, I can't explain why, but for me, it was that the underlying motivation wasn't about me. It was about what could I bring? And sometime in my sobriety, I began noticing that I could go to meetings and I didn't really like feel like I was getting a lot out of it, to be honest. Like I was listening to people and I thought, I've, I've already heard this stuff in my first couple of years. And, and I, I realized then that Yuichi, your motivation this whole time has been, what can you get from the meetings? And maybe it was time to grow, grow up at that point. Maybe this was around seven, eight years. And I began changing my motivation to what can I bring to a meeting? And I'm, and I'm convinced that that's why I still go to meetings because otherwise, if I kept my motivation about like, what can I get? Um, I think I would have just gotten bored. And I know a lot of people who just kind of get disconnected from meetings and find all sorts of reasons to hate meetings and stop going. 
and uh, my secretary of men's meeting. And uh, most of the time, I, to be honest, I don't really relate to a lot of the shares. And I don't, but I still go because I get to be of service. And sometimes I share. And most of the time I'm listening. And if I can give, like, be supportive of someone, I try to be supportive of someone when I share. And, uh, and that really sort of, um, I don't know, kind of blesses my life. That's what I would say. And so, um, so, so I, don't, I, I don't know if this is similar to the agnostics meeting, but there's, I wanna share something about my relationship to this higher power God thing um, that's talked about in the program. Actually, I want to share a story that sort of captures for me sort of the essence of what's what's become or what has been important to me and what continues to be important to me. And I think it's from the Jewish tradition. And it's I think it's a saying, and I might be misremembering because I came across it about 20 years ago. But it said something like this. If a person believes in God and does their sacred work, or their sacred work being, I don't know, I guess it could mean different things. For some people, it could mean prayer. For others, it could mean service. For others, it could be meditation. For others, it could be self-evaluation, like we talk about in this program, and just, or chiseling away at the ego. So if a person believes in God and does their uh, sacred work, they become holy in 40 years. If a person, on the other hand, has faith in God, and does their sacred work, they become holy in 20 years. If a person loves God with all their heart and does their sacred work, they become holy in 10. But if a person uh, hates God or has no concern for God and yet does their sacred work, they become holy in two. And, and, you know, I love that saying because it talks, for me, it, it speaks two things. As one is that it speaks about the difference, sort of the gradation of change from belief, faith, and love. And that's something that, for example, I experienced like in relationships, yeah? There's a kind of, oh, I have this belief that there's something good here to a faith that I think something good will come to, I have love for this person or, or for what's happening. But more importantly, that last part is that when I'm able to take the right action, regardless of how I think, feel, or believe, that's all, for me, that is what being holy is, as far as I'm concerned. My, 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 my course of actions and my choices are no longer dependent on my mood, my feeling, my thoughts, my beliefs. I can just bring them in accord so that I've become sort of less important in the scheme of things. And um, it, when I was early in the, pro, the program, I was sitting at a big speaker meeting, a typical LA speaker meeting, like 100, maybe 200 people. And I was probably like in year two or three and I was sitting in the back row, the speaker was talking and he says, you know, I can tell you who's gonna stick around and who's not. And he points to the back row where I was sitting. He says, all you guys in the half measure section, I'm putting my money on you. And I was thinking, what? <laughs> and he says, and he says, because all you guys in the front, you guys are service and you're happy and all that. 
It's easy to do that. But you guys in the back, you don't even want to be here. You're just ready to split at any moment. But you're here anyway. And he said, you're here in spite of yourselves. And he said, that's what it takes sometimes. You're here in spite of yourselves. And I always remember that. And so that little story that I just mentioned has the same spirit to me is that when I'm able to take the right action in spite of myself sometimes, I know that that's, I, I feel like that's when I'm growing the most. I've, I've just sort of come to accept for myself that when I feel like I'm growing a lot, I'm usually not growing. It's just all surf. Like if I can see my own growth, it's got to be pretty superficial as far as I'm concerned when I look back on my sobriety so far. But it's the times when I'm feeling really stuck and down and nothing's happening and I'm just hanging in there. Maybe I'm just depressed, but I'm just doing whatever I can. It, when I look back, that's when I'm growing the most. I'm convinced of that. And so, I don't know. For me, my sobriety is mostly about like the action. I, a couple of years ago, about five years ago, I, I decided to, um, well, I, to, to be honest, I, 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 was tr I couldn't meet anybody, a girl. I wanted to just meet somebody. So I decided to take yoga and I hated it. So I quit it. And then there's a dance studio. And I thought that's a better way to meet someone because at least you're touching someone. And I, some friends had told me tangles are really sexy one and that's you get really close so I said okay I'm gonna learn some tango and uh well anyway I didn't know anything about anything so I ended up in a salsa class and uh <laughs> it wasn't like a month later when I realized wait this is not tango but salsa and tango both sounded like just latin terms to me so they were basically the same thing in my mind you know what I mean and I realized wait there's a tango class <laughs> anyway so yeah anyway, I was taking this class and I got really into it like the teacher was great. And uh, well, so two, two stories about that. One was um, when you're, anyone who's danced like that as a male might relate to this, but there's something called a beginner's hell for leads. So male are usually the leads in a partner dance and beginners, they have to go through a hell, usually about six to nine months. Why? Because you're the least desirable person on the floor, dance floor. Because if you have all these, follows generally women who um whether they're beginners or advanced or middle if they dance with an advanced lead they have a great dance but if a, a follow doesn't matter the level of the follow if they're dancing with a really bad lead it's not a good dance <laughs> i mean like when i started i couldn't even stay on beat like i met a girl there and we started dating immediately and she would sort of basically correct me constantly like you're not on the beat and then I would watch her dance with other guys and I'd see this joy come across her face. And then when she danced with me, it turned into a frown and it was like the worst. <laughs> and then she would correct my dance. Like, and it was just like, you know, self-esteem just kind of plummets, right? And uh, so I remember, and that was Tuesday nights. So Tuesday nights, I would always come home feeling really, really bad about myself. <laughs> and, uh, after a while, I just decided, okay, Tuesday night's my depression night. And that's just par for the course. I, I wanna learn this, I'm gonna do my best. And I just come home and let myself be depressed for an hour or two and just feel like shit, basically. And, uh, and so for me, that's part of my um, training is whatever is happening is to just be with it, yeah? And to be, be grateful for it. 
So I said, look, I'm going to trust that for whatever reason, this bad feeling is here because it's there and maybe I just have to deal with it. And I don't want to quit. So I let myself feel bad and just really let that loser feeling kind of penetrate me and like, okay, we'll just be a lo- feel like a loser for a couple of hours. But you know, the reason why I let myself do that was because I, what would happen is the next morning, I would wake up with like 1000% motivation to get better. And I would turn on YouTube and watch these dances and slow them down to 25% speed, watch them for hours, break them down and learn new moves and practice the stuff I learned the day before. And I would practice like two, three hours a day because I could, because I was a professor that stack all my classes in the afternoon. And, uh, and, and, and then that motivation would wean. Like, so Wednesday I could practice like three hours and then two hours more. But then I knew Tuesday I would have the motivate the juice again. I would go back to feeling like a loser, which would give me the juice to become motivated. And that's how I got better, to be honest. And, and I passed the beginner's hell and eventually um, it became okay. I, I became, I passed through the hell. And, and it was, I found some enjoyment in it. But okay, that's, that's a complete tangent. But what I meant to say was this, like when you go to these dances, there's a lot of small talk, just like there's small talk at meetings. And some of the small talk is similar to small talk at meetings. So when you go to meetings, sometimes it says, they say like, how long have you been sober? How long have you been clean? So there the small talk is, how long have you been dancing? Well, I've been dancing for two years. I've been dancing for 17 years. This kind of this miniature hierarchy sets itself up. So my teacher one time said to me, Yuichi, we were talking about this phenomena and how bothered I felt that whenever they asked me, my number would be lower than theirs. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a competitive guy. And I don't like that. He says, um, Yuichi, what I found is that it's not the, what I, and he was, he was one of the world's best dancers, probably ranked in the top 25 in the world in his genre. What I found is that um, it's not so much the number of years that a person has been dancing, but the number of hours. And I got it. And I heard it in terms of my sobriety. It's not the number of years, it's the number of hours that I've put in. The numbers that I've put in, dealing with whatever's in front of me to the best of my ability, the numbers that I've put in even sitting through meetings, the numbers that I've put in, forgiving something or letting go of something, letting go of a resentment, the numbers I've put in, writing, journaling, the numbers I've put in into meditation, numbers I've put in, trying to be of service. And, uh, and, I, and I, I try to remember that, that every day I try to put in hours into my sobriety, into my sort of life and and I'm a meditator and so meditation is important to me um so I just looked at my clock so I've hit 31 minutes so I think I think uh, Xander you told me 30 to 40 minutes is about average yeah okay so 30 to 40 as long as you have something to say we are more than willing to listen oh okay um, oh, so maybe I'll just share two other things for my sobriety. So I mentioned that I had this sponsor, his name was John, and, you know, he, he was like a surrogate father to me. And, um, 
I think about 25, 25 years into it, he started showing mild signs of dementia. So I noticed that when I would say some, when I would bring up a topic, he would respond to a conversation that we maybe had 10 years ago. And uh, so I would just go along with him because by that time it was more like, you know, we were friends kind of, or he was an elder friend, but it wasn't like I needed to talk about something. It was just more, I wanted to just connect with him. And eventually it faded. I mean, I, I was still checking in with him like once a month, once every other month. And then about three years ago, I got a call and letting me know that he had passed the day before, a couple of days earlier. And I hadn't talked to him for about three or four months at that time. And I felt bad, like, oh, like, I don't even know what happened. Like, I don't even know the circumstances. And I, I, I could feel kind of guilt, like, oh, why didn't I keep up with it? And I'd been busy with other things too. And, um, and I had this kind of urge in my mind of like, you know, like, I could feel myself slipping into this line of thought where it would be like, I wish I knew more about the circumstances of his death. And I wanted to maybe dig in. And right when I was about to kind of slip into that mind, um, I remembered a conversation we had had early. We had said, Yuichi, everything here is on a need to know basis. And when I remembered it, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. This must not be something I need to know. So I just let it go. And then a couple of days later, I was thinking about his death again. And I was thinking, oh, I guess I don't have a sponsor. I've had the sponsor for, I mean, even though we didn't have that typical relationship for a number of years, um, I started to go into almost a panic mode of like, wait, I'm gonna be without a sponsor. And, uh, and that's a big deal, like he, he died. And I was kind of about to go into that spin. And then I remembered another conversation we had had early on where it said, Yuichi, there are no big deals here. And I was like, oh, so I let that go. And so the transition for me of him existing to him being gone was completely smooth. About a month later, I heard a song and I broke out into tears for about five minutes. And that's, that, was, that was it for me. And I think about him occasionally here and there. But um, my belief system is that, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's true, but it's more like reincarnation. So I just think like, oh, maybe he's going to get back and I'll get to meet him again. I'll be like, oh, yeah, you were John. I don't know if that'll happen, but anyway. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, and for me, what it felt like was that he had already readied me for his death. That's a quite, it's quite a romantic interpretation of events, but that's the interpretation that I like. And that's the interpretation that I choose is that he readied me for his death without realizing. And uh, I thought, what a beautiful thing. I recently had a sponsee that I'd been sponsoring for a couple of years take his own life. So that's on the other side. And I felt, guilt about that initially and upset. For a couple of weeks, I was really down. So when I was really down, I just let myself be down. I said, Yuichi, you're gonna be down for a while. So just let's just be down, not a big deal. And, um, but I kept trying to look for what was good about that. 
for me at least. And then after about three or four weeks, I got to the point where I realized this was a blessing. I got to walk with him in his life for the last two, three years. And, uh, and I got to um, experience what I got to experience to be close to someone, possibly his closest confidant in life and to lose him and to feel the, the sense of responsibility and, but the, and the guilt and all that. And I got to experience all that. And I thought, what a, even though that, that wasn't his intention, obviously, um, what an amazing gift he gave me that I got to experience that part of the human experience. And, um, and how grateful I am for that. And so I've, I've now experienced death on both sides of the sponsorship thing. And, and I think on one hand, not a big deal. It's just common human experience and how grateful I am for both. And um, I've talked about sponsorship, but if there's anyone in here who's fairly new and you're not into sponsorship, I wanna say this one thing. I don't think sponsorship is a necessary component of the program. It just happens to be part of my story. And um, I have a good friend who's got 39 years who's never had a sponsor and I respect the hell out of him. And um, he's just a very independent thinker. And um, so I haven't had a sponsor for three years and I have no intention of getting one. If someone shows up, I'll get one. If not, I won't. And it doesn't seem like a big deal to me. I feel, I feel like John is a failure. It's kind of, if I feel dependent on having, needing a sponsor, I, I can almost blame my sponsor, I feel. Like you failed me to become so codependent on others. That's a joke, basically. I, I can say that facetiously, but I, I kind of mean it also. Like he taught me to stand on my own, right? And uh, I'm still, I'm still, I still go to meetings and I still depend on my friends in so many ways and, uh, and everybody in so many ways. And I'm aware of that, but I also am aware that, um, that there's a lot of value to um, working on my problems on my own as far as I can take them. That's something that one of my PhD professors said to me is that when he sees a problem, he read, when he reads a paper, he reads the abstract and the question, and then he stops reading and tries to solve the problem himself. And I try to do that in my own life. I'm not saying that that's universally applicable, but when I have a personal problem, I try to solve the problem myself and I try to take it as far as I can. And when I feel like I've given it my best shot, then I reach out. And I feel that by doing that, I push myself to, to grow in my ability to think and to process what I can. And, and I, don't, I, don't take the, I don't judge myself as having pride for doing that. I, I, judge, I think of it simply as that's how I can grow. And, and so when I do reach out at that point, I'm, I'm super open. And usually the person just has to say one word and I already hear it because I've done the prep work. And I used to say that to my students as a teacher too. I used to say, put in the work, struggle as hard as you can on the problems before you come to me for help, because that's how you're gonna learn. And so I've been trying to live that in my own life as well, to the best of my ability. And um, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this one last story. So that was, I said two, so that was the first one. This last story is something that's not even my story, but it's been an important story for me ever since I heard it. So. The story goes is that apparently uh, there was a serial arsonist 
And this person was burning down houses and they finally caught the arsonist and the arsonist turned out to be a woman. So when they caught this woman arsonist, they hooked her up with a court appointed counselor. So they're sitting in the session and I heard this from, I believe the daughter of the counselor or she claimed to be the daughter of the counselor. So, so the counselor and the arsonist are talking and eventually the counselor asks, they're both women, asks the arsonist, what, so why'd you do it? The arsonist says, um, because my washing machine told me to do it. Counselor says, oh, that's very interesting. Um, can you tell me what brand of washing machine do you happen to own? The arsonist says, well, it's a Kenmore Sears brand. And the counselor says, oh, honey, you can't rely on that. That's such an unreliable brand, don't you know? <laughs> and that's the story. And, and so for me, what, you know, I, so, so like there's a washing machine that talks to me regularly also. And, uh, and for me, sanity would be when I think that my washing machine is perfectly reliable, that would be my definition of insanity. But when I understand that this washing machine sometimes is on and sometimes is completely off and I can hold the washing machine, it's just a talking washing machine that occasionally tells the right time basically, I'm good. I don't have to believe everything I think. But at the same time, I can put in the work. And so that's kind of the paradox of my sobriety is I can hold things loosely to the best of my ability, but put in the work, put in the effort. And, and so far that's worked for me. And so I'll stop there. And thank you for listening to this long pitch, <laughs> 42 minutes.